John, welcome to the podcast to be, as in, although people won't know this if they're actually listening to the podcast, this is the second time we've done the second <laughs> podcast because of technical snafus entirely relatable to myself. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a sharp learning curve. Well, I want to say that the good thing about us having to do again is the thing that I forgot to do, or that we both forgot to do, the first time on the second podcast was a huge thanks to Mary Heinz, your sister, who actually does all the real work of editing this nonsense into something that is almost comprehensible. I agree. If anybody ever hears the raw feeds of these things, they will run screaming from the room, but your sister somehow manages not to do that and put it together into something uh, that almost sounds like we know what we ta we're talking about. Really, seriously, she deserves all of the credit for any anything that comes out of this. For sure. So what did you think of the first podcast? I thought the first, po first podcast went really well. Um, we got feedback from our two listeners, and um, one of whom is my husband and the other of whom is our editor. And um, maybe a, actually, and I guess a couple of your, your children. So we got, then, did no, get no, some positive feedback. We also had feedback. the uh, friend of mine on Facebook who wanted to know why you were dissing Atlanta. But uh, <laughs> we should remember that, John. I, I want to I come out strong in favor of Atlanta, yeah, and I want Atlanta to know that I am a massive Atlanta yes. fan, that I have spent some formative time in Atlanta and would uh, and welcome we the opportunity to spend more to formative that, time there. Fairly sure. John, I think you and I have some disagreements about what the podcast should be. Well, I think we're exploring that a little bit. Podcasts seem to fall into the category of interviews, chatter and banter, or information. And to be honest, we're doing some bizarre mix of all three at any given moment. Well, barring the interviews, we haven't really done interviews, unless you would consider what we did last time being an interview of me, which I suppose it could no, be. No, we will do. We will have me. guests. We will have guests. We're actually working on having a guest for today, but it didn't work out. But we will have guests in the future. Forgetting about uh, your obsession with categorizing things, which, you know, puts you in with Aristotle, Descartes, and Foucault, I suppose. So that's not bad company. You'd like the podcast to be more organized, more structured. Well, we've had this discussion on uh, in, in other areas. I have a strong preference for underproduced entertainment. I tend to mix up a high production value show with less edgy, more conservative uh, commentary. And by conservative, I don't mean politically conservative. I simply mean less willing or more beholden to interests that water down the, the kind of truthfulness or authenticity of it. A less produced show is necessarily going to be somehow more authentic than perhaps something that is a lot more heavily produced. Now, having said that, if we ourselves are doing the work to make it a more produced show, that's great. But if it's if it's because we've got a whole army of people behind us making this sound fantastic, I think at some point you got to pay the piper. And I'm, I'm really not interested in doing this to pay the piper. OK, well, we don't have an army, but tell me, but you'd like things to be more you'd like to be more prepared in conversation. I like people to get to the point. When I was growing up, the two stories that my family tell about me all the time, my, my five siblings and many, many, many cousins, always said to me that I used to, when people were talking and I was younger, I used to make 
point my two pointer fingers together and tip them and, and, and suggest to the person, get to the point. And I also used to tell people who would speak without giving the context of what they were saying, I would frequently tell them, especially my youngest sister, I would tell her to tell it like a story. So those are kind of two things that I just inherently value. And for me to be able to have a little more time to prepare, I feel like maybe I'd have a better chance of both getting to points that people would find more interesting and I would be able to tell things as stories. And generally, I think stories are pretty interesting. Certainly, I think stories are more interesting than spreadsheets. Yes, but I like catching you by surprise. (laughs) There you go. Let's explore that. Just to illustrate something... One of the differences between us, a fundamental difference between, maybe not a fundamental difference, but a real difference between us is that, by way of illustration, that since the first podcast recorded, you have gone with Ted, your husband, to Palm Springs, California, (laughs) whereas I have watched the movie Palm Springs Weekend from 1963, and I think that's probably illustrative of our lives. I have been to exactly three three trips outside the United States in my life, once to Paris, once to London, once to Montreal. You were involved in two of those three trips. I like to travel. Now, you've been many places on many occasions outside the United States. Well, that actually, that cuts to the chase a little bit, and I, I maybe I appreciate you get you doing that, but I like to travel. I like it. I like it. This is the point. If you think that's the point, I'm going to change it. We'll talk about something else because... What I'm trying to say is that the value of travel is that it opens the mind and encourages people, me especially, to see things differently than I would see them if I were walking out of the house every day and smelling the same smells and seeing the same sights and seeing the same, uh, the same people, foliage, cars, streets, you know, wires, that when I see different landscapes, people and hear different sounds, including languages and the sounds of uh, socializing, that for me, it, it takes me out of my comfort zone and gets me to think about, th- it gets me to think more critically about the world around me. So I think that at some, if I, if I may be overly dramatic here, which I know I'm a little bit prone to do, I'd say that the value of travel is that it's what's going to save the world from people who would otherwise be afraid of others and therefore do things like cause wars that are really rooted in fear of others or enemy creation based on a desire to otherize people and keep them at, at, at arm's length. I believe that travel brings them in. Well, that's not only overly dramatic, it's probably factually and empirically wrong. But before we do get into that, Let's talk about the following, which is my surprise, based on knowing you for almost 25 years, and also based, of course, on the first podcast, that your love of travel didn't come down to sex right away, because at root, everything comes down to sex, according to the last podcast, right? I think what we said is everything comes down to sexuality, and sex is inherently well, actually, tied you to said that. It all comes down to sex, but now you're trying to clean it up and make it sound sound less tawdry, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think I used that precise sound bite, but if I did, it was in the context of a broader explanation of sexuality well, as thank culture. thank you for that clarification, Mr. Spicer. Ouch. I may have said that, but that's not what I <laughs> Travel in the way we mean it, which is to say travel that's become accessible to a person like yourself or like myself, 
not to someone who's extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, yes. It really is a function of the last 150 years or so of human history. The way we travel, I, I well, think. I mean, yeah, I think so. The, the idea of travel that wasn't directly related to either being a soldier or a diplomat or, a, or involved in trade is, is a relatively new concept in the history. You know, people just didn't. You know, in, in 17th century England, they didn't just pick up and say, hey, I'm going to go to France for a couple of weeks. You know? Well, I think they probably did. But I think that goes back to I think that just goes no, back to the idea that the people didn't. who had the resources to do it did it. They didn't. They went because they were fighting in France for a couple of weeks. They didn't go just for seeing the sights. They might have gone if they were involved in trade or they might have gone if they were soldiers or they might have gone if they were diplomats. But I don't think. There was such a thing as just sort of leisure travel in those days. I think there wasn't leisure travel for the masses and maybe not even for the privileged classes. But for the most privileged classes, i.e. the daughter of the king that was being set up with the daughter, the son of the other king would probably go there to socialize. No, they would go there when they were being married off to the son of the king of france or something what's well how's that different from what i just said well but i mean that's a very specific purpose that's not why people travel today to go get married they get they travel for pleasure they travel at by choice and not in every case but if your point is that there are some kings that you know sent their prince to marry the princess in a neighboring town and therefore the princess no, that's and not the my prince point. were only like going for work that's fine but i think occasionally there were people the who were friends and just did it for that, fun over the last 150 years, even you would have to agree that the n- amount, the number of people, the volume of travel has increased exponentially. And would you say that that has resulted in the world being a safer, kinder, gentler place? Because certainly the history of the last 150 years is not one that is absent of uh, warfare and violence. I think there's no question that the world is a safer, more loving, more open place than it was in the past. Than it was in the past when? If I were making a graph, it would be a messy line up, but it'd be going up a hill and it would continue going up that so hill. So your view is, and I mean, I mean, this is certainly, I guess, conventional wisdom on the subject, is that travel is some sort of way of getting human beings to reduce the dangers of friction of fighting of that familiarity doesn't breed contempt but it breeds cooperation on some level i don't want to race straight to the trans-pacific partnership but i do think trade deals are ultimately i know but i want to but i will say that trade i think that trade is something that necessarily and inherently comes with travel Because at a minimum, the people who are traveling to Giza to see the pyramids are going to eat something. They may not be going to buy a little pyramid keychain ring, but they're going to be going there to eat. And therefore, there's some trade that's happening there. So I think at some minimal level, there's definitely trade. But I mean, you you made this statement by saying you think that it decreases this otherization, this decrease of violence. Is that really attributable to travel? Or even to what extent is that... Is that illusory? Do we really have that? Name a war, and I bet it wouldn't be too hard to find the root of the war 
being in the ability of one group on one side of the war defining as an enemy well, the other side of the war. Unquestionably, that is... And that, me, and that, and that, un- that, and that unquestionably I'll, comes from I'll otherness. That premise. My point is, has travel, has the fact that there is so much more travel really reduced that? I don't think that's true. Between up on certainly not to the level we have today, but prior to World War II, which was a terribly devastating war, uh, certainly there was more travel in the world than there had been, say, in the previous century. Yet, certainly in terms of the number of lives lost, there is no war that was worse than World War II. I don't think travel has happened in such large amounts that it has eliminated otherness and enemy creation and the, the xenophobia that leads to fear and willingness to put down others and whether it's through violent means or nonviolent means or through anything trade sanctions or anything else i don't think that tra- that travel has increased to the point where it's completely ended all otherness but there's no question in my mind that the travel that has occurred makes it less likely that one would want to shoot someone in a culture where that they know more than they'd shoot someone they view as a potential threat to them or their lifestyles. Well, I mean, that's the theory. If I know my neighbor, I'm going to be more likely to trust them than if I don't know my neighbor. I always take these things at a macro level and reduce it to a real micro level. But that's not always the case. Sometimes knowing someone makes you less likely to trust them. Depends on what you know. I think it does happen sometimes. I think on average it happens far less often. I don't know. I'm certainly not advocating against travel, despite what it may appear. I'm just questioning whether the benefit, the broad benefit that you asserted, or as you said when you were being dramatic, is uh, really there. One of the things that, as a background here is that I have been reading a book by Professor Daniel Borston, who originally wrote this book in 1962 called The Image, subtitle being A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. And it's particularly focused on American society, although it has some applicability beyond that, I think. And it basically talks about how the mass culture is, in a sense, corrupted by things becoming less real, less authentic. Now, authentic is my word, not his word. This book has been, remains, I think, fairly influential. It was in this book that Borston formulated the idea that the, a person who's a celebrity is really a person who's famous for being famous, which I think is sort of stuck with us as the idea of celebrity. And although I think that it is fashionable now to be aware of all these things about pseudo-events and so forth and to, to crave, you know, realness and authenticity, I think that you can make an argument that all of that is just another form of posing and posturing. And one of the things Borston talks about is mass travel, that it is not really travel in the same sense of what it was originally and that it is you know, in some sense, the value of it becomes degraded as a result. And part of that seems to be there's a strain in Borston, uh, and I haven't finished the book, but there certainly seems a strain in Borston, a, a bit of an elitist strain, where essentially he's saying 
on a lot of levels that the fact that everything is so widely available, whether it's access to news or travel or so forth, that there's sort of an inevitable degradation of the value of it just by the fact that it's available. I mean, it's almost an argument why the dangers of having a sort of a democratic, open society in some sense. He's not, I don't think, and I haven't read the rest of the book, but I don't think he's making an argument against democracy. Well, Jim, as we mentioned, we were going to have a shortened podcast today, and um, I think that's all we have time for. I, I think this is a topic that we can address more once we've gotten some feedback from our listeners, uh, which I know is another one of the things we're talking about. Um, so we encourage you to contact us via our Twitter, which is two guys in search, hashtag two guys in search, or uh, at our website, two guys in search of an argument.com. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks.